Madlib was well on his way to becoming one of rap's most innovative and respected producers by the year 2000. His vision had helped the Loop Pack crew garner the attention of the Stone's Throw record label, a highly respected seal of approval in the alternative hip-hop landscape. In between Loop Pack projects, Madlib, with the aid of psychedelic mushrooms, developed an alter ego, rap's equivalent of Ziggy Stardust. Under the name Quasimodo, he played off the established Madlib persona and the animated devil on his shoulder, Lord Quaz. His debut release, The Unseen, presents a persistent theme of the struggles of communities of color highlighting issues that largely remain the same even 20 years after its release. It lacked the MTV glitz and glamour to muster up true mainstream attention, but the album is full of various entry points, including the unseen seventh track, Low Class Conspiracy, which found its way onto the Tony Hawk's underground soundtrack in 2003. Quasimodo's The Unseen is unrelentingly experimental, daring to become something that no album before or since has been able to fully duplicate. It's a masterful attempt at a concept that became larger than just a singular concept album. Quasimodo's The Unseen is an art school album. My guest today, someone that I am just genuinely so excited to have on the podcast, someone that I have known since literally my first day of college, and we are going to get into our first experience, because I don't know if my guest remembers it or not, but I damn sure do, uh, but I'm so excited to have this person on the podcast, finally, my guest today, Chandler, my man, how are you doing? I'm doing just dandy, Case, uh, or as dandy as I can be doing uh, in these really hard and uh, just genuinely awful times. <laughs> uh, I would say that I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah, it's uh, it's not easy being anyone uh, currently. It's There's certainly marginalized groups that have it much harder than, than me, a straight white male, have, but I, I'm glad I can at least for the next hour be here with you uh, and talk about the first hip-hop album on the show that we've done and it's something i've been wanting to do it's certainly not intentional that it has taken us this long to cross the genre border into hip-hop and rap it is just a matter of timing and it is time that we discuss quasimodo's the unseen but before we do that i think to properly contextualize the two people that are discussing this album we need to dig a little bit into who Chandler is as a person and I want to start off Chandler do you remember the first time we met uh well you were roommates with my uh, first friends in college uh Mr. Dylan Boster and Adam Hendricks uh and our soon to be or your uh, frequent collaborator of the show Jake Klingensmith as well was your other roommate and then there was old case as well in that in that lovely dorm at the Plymouth uh Plymouth dorms in Chicago, Illinois. Yes. Not in the South Loop. So it is my first day in school. I have just moved in. My parents have left. I am on my own in a big city and I'm scared. I don't know if I was comfortable admitting I was scared at the time, but I was scared. And the first thing that I made sure I had set up in the dorm, which in the Plymouth was 
basically an apartment, very nice space. Um, but the first thing I had set up in the living room was my my turntable and my receiver and my stereos. I just for some reason that was going to come for me. I just wanted my music on display in some way, shape, or form. So it's me and my three roommates were kind of getting to know each other, and still it's just you know it's the first day. It's very awkward, whatever. And then someone comes in the room who I do not know, <laughs> and this person makes themselves very comfortable immediately kind of as if it was their room even though it wasn't um and that person was chandler and i was just trying to feel chandler out like what's this dude's deal like i can't get a good read on him and then he notices the turntable in the corner of the room and he looks at me he's like is this yours i was like yeah he's like i'll be right back and on the first day of knowing Chandler, he leaves our room, grabs uh, the Mad Villain album from his room, and then comes back to mine and then begins using my turntable <laughs> 15 minutes after I met him. And I, was like, and I am a man of structure and a man of, I like rules and organization and just, just not whatever that was i was so blown away by the audacity of it of this person i do not know and i was like if this is what college is going to be like i'm going to really struggle here and then (laughs) once once we got past that it turns out that chandler is actually the nicest human on earth someone who if you ever see me walking around the south loop of chicago i am almost always headphones on uh just ignoring my surroundings i'm like a 2010 tumblr post i'm headphones on world (laughs) off whenever i see chandler though i stop and say hi and talk because i love bumping in to chandler because chandler's always gonna have something interesting to say always gonna have a take that i appreciate and chandler you are not the first married person to have on the podcast but you are the youngest married person to have on the podcast would you like to explain your relationship status to the listeners oh yes i would i would i'm very proud of my relationship status as a married uh person i'm a gender so man woman they them also all work for me uh but as a married person uh i man i've had to retell this story so many times but it's, uh, i i hate to to <laughs> rake it back no, across no, no, the no. coals it but it needs to be told oh yeah so uh much like my uh much like my uh, host here case you know i was very nervous about going into college uh you know i feel like i but my nervousness does not uh, manifest in shyness it manifests in outbursts and whatever comes into my head just kind of comes out of my mouth and so i've always kind of been an impulsive and instinctive person uh, and I met somebody in my first, uh, week of college, uh, by the name of Jamie Nance, my, who's now my lovely wife. Uh, and we met through my other first friend. I mentioned Dylan Boster and Adam Hendricks earlier, but Mackenzie Shelton was my other first friend on, uh, <laughs> at college. And she was roommates with my soon to be wife, Jamie Nance. Uh, we met, uh, pretty much early on, I had lost my wallet the first week of school, and I had lost it for about the first, uh, I'd say like two months, I didn't have a wallet. <laughs> uh, a factor that I had completely forgotten about was 
<laughs> I completely forgot about the no wallet thing because that weirdly like impacted my life too. Like Chandler was just in a room, like I don't know where to go. I don't have a wallet. I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I cannot solve this problem for you. And so, if anyone's familiar with the uh, the dorm systems at our college, Columbia College, uh, they're very strict about letting anyone into our buildings. Uh, if you don't have proper identification, you can't get into any buildings. And so, she lived in a dorm that was opposite of ours, the Dwight. And so, it took me forever to actually meet her uh, and spend proper time with her because when I had lost my wallet, they had only let me in once. And so I was in the Dwight a total of once uh, meeting my wife for the first time. And I pretty much had to just uh, leave her there <laughs> and not see her for, I would say, a, a few days. We met a couple times outside of there. But immediately, once I met her, uh, we hit it off. We went on our first date. And uh, after two weeks, she asked me to marry her. <laughs> and initially... It was just a joke, you know. It was like, wouldn't it be hysterical if we two college freshmen who've only been together for about two weeks uh, got married? And then we decided, you know what? Let's not stop there. Let's get a divorce after two weeks of that. <laughs> we wanted to play it off as a joke, kind of like how easy it is for a straight couple to get married and divorced and have no real stigma about it. You know, people wanted to be dicks and get technical and be like, oh, he's annulled and not technically a divorce. But, you know, we wanted to follow through with it. We were going to make a documentary. We had all this stuff planned out and everyone was in on the joke. We told everyone we made invitations and invited pretty much the entirety of the city of Chicago to our wedding. Um, and then when the time came, we had her friends drive up from Kentucky uh, to come visit and witness the ceremony. Very few people showed up. <laughs> our close friends did. And it was on the beach, November 11th, uh, 2017 just after my 19th birthday, November 2nd. And now, real quick, I, I, I did not go to this wedding. I had something going on that day that I could not get out of because it was on a Saturday. And I don't have many regrets in life, but <laughs> genuinely, genuinely one of them is the fact that I did not make it down to the beach that day because I just love the story I love you two together. I think it's the greatest thing, and it and it bothers me to a tremendous degree that I wasn't there to celebrate it. Well, you know, you only missed being incredibly cold on the beach and getting stepping in a bunch of sh uh, geese shit. That was pretty much the only other thing that happened besides the ceremony. But that's the unanimous thing that happened was everyone was cold, and we all stepped in a ton of geese shit. Uh, we were on, we were on. Oh gosh. Over by the planetarium, 12th Street Beach. That's where it was, exactly. Uh, which is now a parking lot, I believe. So our, our original marriage site is now a parking lot. Uh, <laughs> if you ever get a chance to go to the planetarium, though, it is gorgeous. That beach is gorgeous. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that I was married there. A very unique wedding and one that I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, but when the time came to get a divorce, we just didn't want to. And here we are about three years later, uh, still happily married. We live together and we've lived together, together ever since. And I'm very proud to be a married person. A unique wedding for a unique person. You're someone that 
really seems to have their ear to the ground in terms of artistic influences and the music you listen to. I mean, you're someone who's here talking about an underground hip-hop album. I distinctly remember in no, last November when I went and saw Touche Amore and La Dispute at the Metro and put something on Instagram about it. Chandler was there in the comments like, oh man, that sounds like a killer show. And it's you have such an, a, 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 a wide array of tastes. So kind of right now in this current moment, either musicians or visual artists or just whoever, who are you looking for or looking towards rather for creative inspiration? I'm glad you asked that because honestly, the album that we're looking at today, Mr. Madlib Otis Jackson Jr. is probably my biggest influence as a, as a, as an artist, I would say, uh, and it's been that way ever since I heard his work on Mad Villainy when I was an eighth grader. Uh, it's I've just kind of really attached myself not only to his sound, but to the ethos of being a... I don't like the auteur theory because I love collaboration. I love working with people. But there is definitely something comforting in working with yourself and trying to harness your own abilities. And I feel like Mad Lib is the perfect example of an artist that chooses to harness their own abilities first and foremost. Uh, he's a very singular artist and he tends to pull from a lot of things and work on his own first and foremost. And I kind of like that. I like the idea of harnessing your own power so that you can then bring something to others. Cause I'm all about sharing this holistic experience of life. And I think that it starts with yourself more than anything else. So talk to me a little bit about Quasimodo's The Unseen, which, as you mentioned, uh, maybe I think it was off air, but, you know, we just recently passed the 20th anniversary of this album. It came out on June 13th, 2000. So when did you hear this album for the first time? What do you know about the background of the record? Kind of just uh, big picture. What do you think of when you think Quasimodo's The Unseen? Well... I didn't find, I remember the first track I heard was Low Class Conspiracy, and it was right around the time that I was getting into Mad Villainy at the same time. I knew that this was Mad Lib's own personal stuff, but I was more interested in MF Doom and the Mad Villain project than I was in Quasimodo at the time. So I would say that mm, maybe around my senior year of high school is when I really gave The Unseen a real hearty listen. And I've been hooked ever since. It's something that I constantly go back to for influence, not just, you know, sonically, but I think the aesthetics of the album and the themes and the ethos of it are very, very, uh, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Very complementary. It all works together in a holistic way that I think makes it kind of timeless. Like listening to it, knowing that we just crossed the 20 year anniversary of this album makes it feel like it's light years ahead of some music that's even being made today, I would say. The cross-referential power of the album, I think is very, very impressive and something that I think is uh, one of the most beautiful things about hip hop, you know, is its ability to reference other things and recontextualize them in a way that makes it new and fresh, but also, has that connection to time. I think that that's what I really admire about this album. That's uh, just a phenomenal way of describing this. And this is, you know, Quasimodo is, is Mad Lib, the producer's alter ego, sort of a Bowie Ziggy Stardust situation there, just to contextualize it a little bit. And, you know, you had, had brought this album to me, you said this was, you know, I want to do the podcast on. It was something that, 
I was completely unfamiliar with. For whatever reason, this is like a subsect of hip-hop that I've known about but have just never ventured into it for whatever reason. And it, it goes against... I think I it, it greatly goes against a lot of my personality, but a lot of the hip-hop that I like is very mainstream, not of today, but of 15, 20 years ago. Of you know, I think Jay-Z's The Blueprint is the greatest rap album ever recorded. Um, I love like big timers and the early cash money stuff with like really young Lil Wayne. And I don't know if that totally tracks like with my own personality. Like I think that's a bit (laughs) of an outlier, but like when I think of like hip hop excellence, like cash money is what comes to mind. And then like, I think the closest I get to any sort of alternative hip hop is I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Gangstar and Gangstar is sampled on this album. They're mentioned on this album. Like Gangstar was a group that I got into at a really young age and just the the simplicity of their production, even if DJ Premier is constructing these really complex beats and using these samples that, you know, no one else in the game has, at the end of the day, Gangstar was two dudes who just loved hip-hop, and that really came through. And Quasimodo is... It's more experimental, I think, than anything I'm used to in the hip hop genre. But and, and we'll go through this album. It's it's 24 songs long, so we're not gonna go track by track on this one. I kind of just want to highlight some of the main songs that I had takes on. Chandler can do the same, uh, and and we'll get out of your ears at that point. We'll call it a day. But it, <laughs> it's a it's a great undertaking in this album. Even if it's not, you know, my favorite piece of hip hop I've ever recorded, it is such a statement and such a bold artistic vision. And it's interesting to see the genre, which, you know, in its simplest form can be reduced to a a few 808s and rhyming, to see the genre pushed to this degree and to see it experimented to such a great level is something that big picture wise, I I have to say I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because... I feel like, again, reiterating what I said, it's like Madlib locked himself pretty much in his home for a month and took a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms and came up with the idea for this album. And I don't know if it's a, I, I say came up with this idea very loosely because I feel like the the album is more about the artistic process than anything else. You know, it's kind of about that free-flowing creation and you know, knowing yourself and referencing others and knowing what you like and what you love and using them to your best ability. And, you know, that's a very psychedelic mindset. Like you said, it's an experimental album. I would say that it's, you know, the progressiveness of it is it still mind boggles me to this day. Like there is some, like the fact that there, a lot of it is still constructed from samples, but the way that samples are used are unlike anything I feel like I've seen ever, like the use of just vocal snippets. You know, he, there's so much of this album that you can argue isn't music. <laughs> like there's a lot of it that's just like sound collage and sound design, you know, that has a more, it feels cohesive in that sense, you know, like listening to the album from beginning to end, it has that feel of like a full statement i would say and so you know you can listen to the album's highlights and it has i i I have a list of tracks here that i consider highlights that you can play on their own as just good solid hip-hop bangers but to listen to it all together really does paint a picture and i think the name of it the unseen really speaks a lot to 
being a black American artistically, I would say you're unseen. You're something that's kind of in the background of a lot of what's going on, but you're saying a lot, you have a lot going on, but it's just not seen, you know, it's kind of like uh, this being an alternative hip hop album, something that's underground uh, and not in the mainstream per se, there's no way that this would reach like a mass audience, I would say, but it's such a bold artistic statement that I can't help but respect it in that, in that way. I think you are completely right in the sense that at some point, if, if any of the singles or any particular song grabs you, I think sitting down for the hour and three minutes, listening to the 24 songs consecutively, I think it's a, a worthwhile experience. Now, I think I think you and I have actually talked about this. I think I remember this conversation from freshman year of an album like uh, Modest Mouse's Lonesome Crowded West. Yes. A- amazing album. Amazing album. Too long. <laughs> there, are, there are songs there. <laughs> there are songs there that could be cut. I think the album, it's like 13 songs that clocks in at like 56 minutes. Like it's just... For me, as someone that is going to gravitate a little bit more towards like a Joyce Manor, where their albums are twenty-two minutes long, minutes like long, yeah, it's it's never it's fall a little... in love again. You know, is like what fifteen minutes of like just pure pop punk. Yes, exactly. Like I know I know what that is, and I like it, and I can listen to the entire album while I eat lunch, and I'm good to go. Um, but this is a bit of a more holistic experience. I mean, you're you're taking on a pretty heavy emotion journey if you you know if you're someone like me who can only attempt to sort of put yourself in the metaphorical state of a person of color in this country I will obviously never understand what that's like but I can at least respect uh, the message that is being told and then you know someone like me who you know doesn't dabble in psychedelics at all you know there's a lot of that on this album where it's like oh okay this i i bet this is good to somebody i mean this this (laughs) has to work in some sort of context i have more power to him um but it's worth sitting down for the entire hour but i think if we're gonna highlight some songs on this album i think you have to start with low class conspiracy absolutely You mentioned that was the first song you heard. It's the most popular song on Spotify from this album, so it's the first song I heard. I think it's the most accessible song there is. I think the popularity is warranted. I think it's reasonable. Unfortunately, it's a song that 20 years later, we just passed the 20-year anniversary of this album, especially right now, it feels all too relevant. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, and the use of you know, like I said, the sound design of it, you know, having these cops that are just kind of in the background talking to, you know, who can I, who I can only assume is an all black, uh, uh, I guess, convoy would be the right word that the, the, the group of men in this car, you know, having a just a good time and then they just get stopped and harassed. It's just a classic story of being harassed by the police. And then it kind of dips into a weird narrative about robbing a bank. (laughs) So there's a lot of that on this album of the first half of a song. It's like, oh, I understand what's happening here. The beat is nice. The story is there. I understand what's happening. And then the back half of the song completely changes. And I am left utterly confused. I mean, so many of these songs are short to begin with. I mean, it's not a two-minute, three-minute songs. But in those two or three minutes, there's so many 
turns and twists and directional changes that I am just I, I'm floored by. I've never heard anything quite like it. Yeah, I, I think that again, low class conspiracy is a great place to start with it. If you're looking to get into the sound of Madlib, I think that that you can't get much better than low class conspiracy as a jumping off point. Uh, I have I, starting from like the top down. I think that the first track that really stands out as excellent besides I think microphone mathematics is a great, you know, flip of the most deaf track. Uh, I think it's, it's an excellent use of that song and, you know, the little flute ads in it are just really nice and tasteful, but basic instinct is the song to me that just gets me grooving and it gets me in the mood for what I'm going to be listening to with the rest of the album. So Basic Instinct is an interesting one because I think specifically that that Quasimodo sound where it is is the character rapping and there are no hints of Madlib at all because there are parts of this album where even though Madlib is playing a character, he kind of dips in and out of that character, uh, which is something that, you know, this album was reviewed twice by Pitchfork, once originally and then once for the reissue, and both are up on the site. And one of the things that the original Pitchfork review talks about is it it feels a little bit too cluttered because it's like Madlib wants to rap on this album, but then he also wants to do this character album. And occasionally they mesh well, sometimes I think not as well, but if you just want what you know the 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 aura of Quasimodo I agree I think basic instinct is the track to look towards yeah and I, and you know I don't think we've actually highlighted this well enough so the difference between Quasimodo and Madlib is that Madlib is painted as the beat conductor on this album he is mostly reined in as the producer and he uses Lord Quas which is an imaginary Sometimes yellow, sometimes blue, bear-like, anteater, alien creature, uh, which is just Madlib with a pitched-up voice, you know, auditorily speaking, but kind of like a gorilla's thing coming in with the art that is Quasimodo. Quasimodo is a completely different entity from Madlib in the Quasverse, uh, and in the all-important Quasverse. <laughs> Yes, he uh, <laughs> soon collaborating with the MCU, having his own after credits <laughs> with Howard the Duck. Uh, um, but he he's he's even featured on Mad Villainy. You know, Madlib does the beats for that entire album, but Lord Quaz makes an appearance on the song Shadows of Tomorrow as well. So he has an entity. He is an entity that spreads beyond the Quasimodo projects, which I think is very very fascinating and a good. I think it works in this context, you know, to have these two different characters, it feels dynamic. You know, I feel like in that way, this whole album is Mad Libs, you know, because it is just one man's work, but he's creating kind of a universe around it. I think that that's an important statement, you know, the ability of one man to be able to spread himself thin and, you know, do different things and, take on different characters and just, you know, have a true vision. I think that it's a, a testament to his creativity, honestly. It's an idea that I have trouble even fathoming. I mean, I, I look at myself and I'm someone who often is concerned about not even my lack of creativity, but my lack of imagination. Like I, I fear as I get older, like I, I'm becoming a little bit more black and white and based a little bit more in 
you know, what is what is logical and what is logistical on an album like this, especially given what I primarily listen to, which, you know, my Spotify statistics are probably skewing 75% in the indie and in the punk stratosphere, um, and then probably about 20% hip-hop, and then a little 5% sliver of old-school country music because I am a cowboy at heart. But Oh, man. I've been listening. I want to highlight some good black country music artists that I've been getting into recently Please. as well. Uh um, hold on. Give me one second. Uh, Clarence Gatemouth. Uh, hold on. Clarence Gatemouth Brown is an excellent violinist and guitarist. Uh, the the song uh, Dark End of the Hallway. Excellent, excellent country song uh, from an African-American artist. Excellent. Uh, and Big Al Downing is an amazing pianist uh, and country music artist. All right. Back to the back to the. Chandler, yeah, this, is, this, is, this is why I have you on the show, because this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be talking about a hip hop album. And then uh, you could throw me black country artist names to listen to. That is exactly what I was envisioning. But but yeah, it's just it's such a daunting idea. And I think especially when you look at the landscape of hip hop in 2000, because I think now this idea is a little bit more accessible or accepted. I mean, we've seen the transformation of someone like Tyler, the creator who has just drastically changed his sound. And even if he doesn't really have, you know, an alter ego, it feels like there's a large part of Tyler's persona that is, is character based. Um, and then he gives interviews where he is unapologetically himself, which I, I greatly enjoy. I would like to be friends with Ty- Tyler, the creator. I think that would be a good, a good oh, friendship, yeah. but um, yeah. a case and Tyler, the creator photo op would be something <laughs> that I would pay big money for, you know, to see you dressed head to toe in golf clothes and the Igor, Igor wig would be, uh, would be gold. And, pe- and you know, people Igor- would look at those photos. And they would go, no, that works. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> there would be no questions asked. <laughs> but a- um, as as for the album, I mean, there's it's just such a- an interesting display. And I, I think there's a confidence and sort of an unapologetic nature to this work, where if you look at a song like Real Eyes. I was like, about to say, I was about to say those three. I have I've, I'm obsessed with in music or at least in an album. If there's a run of like three songs that like work so perfectly absolutely Uh, and i think realize come on feet and bluffin are this album's like sprint of excellence like those three tracks are unbelievably like perfect together like they oh man and starting with realize yeah i would say that so let's talk about this trio real quick because i have a, a trio on this album, a string of three songs that I'm like, yes, that is what I'm into on this album. And it is dangerously close to the to the group of songs you just listed. But the song Come On Feet, just one that I just did not <laughs> understand. Like I it was it felt like a, a black spot or, you know, like a sore, a sore growth on an album that is otherwise for the most part, largely entertaining. There's, you know, two or three songs in here that, that didn't do much for me. And that was one of them. So put me in the mindset of you here, try to help me like the song at all. Well, I remember, uh, the time that come on feet really clicked with me, uh, was when I was working at Chipotle, uh, I used to work the night shift and every night I would pick an album to skate home to. And I lived about 30 minutes from home. Uh, and so it would take me, I would listen to about half the album and I remember getting to come on feet, uh, 
and it it's a it's a feeling of just wanting to get home just having you getting to like carry yourself it's really about just like just begging yourself to stick with you you know it's like for the love of god just don't give out on me feet just just carry me home that's all i'm asking you to do and i think that that's with the sentiment of this album you know again i i'm not speaking you know for the black community but i feel like the the amount of just sheer blackness in this album you know the unapologetic blackness of this album is clear and it's in a song like come on feet feels like to me something about that just desperation to survive to just make it to the end to just just come on just carry me that's all i'm at i need to do it in a, in a way it's like that that singular again it wraps around to that self quality the fact that he's trying to do this all on his own you know i think there is something about you know personal growth and reflection and just depending on yourself and i think that come on feet really does embody that in a lot of ways i will have to go back and re-listen to that track with that in mind because that that is just a perspective that i i didn't have on the song that i had not thought about it, it's i i think you summed that up really well and it makes me excited to go back and listen to the song and see if it clicks uh, when we're when we're through with the podcast. But you know, uh, like you mentioned, Bluffin, phenomenal. Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to that because for me, the the trio of songs that really work. It starts with Bluffin, and then you go into Boom Music and MHBs, and it's like that is that is my territory of like this works. I think to your point, and I think these three songs, the Bluffin, Boom, Boom Music, and MHBs, feels a little bit more. I guess traditional. Like I was able to pick up on these songs rather quickly, and there is that element. And again, you know, it, it's not like I can relate to it, but I can certainly appreciate it of that that element of unapologetic black excellence. And I that's part of the reason that I love the the Cash Money crew so much. Is you know, I think previously the South, you know, the guy to come out of there was Master P, and and not to certainly not to diss Master P. I would never, but you know, very glossy, very ready for MTV. Like it was accessible. And then you have the Cash Money crew come out and they've got their their plain white tees. Uh, and, and, you know, Manny and Baby are decked out in diamonds in a way that really no rapper had done in, in like an intimidating way almost. Like it was always look at the chains, like respect this hustle. And with Manny and Birdman, it was like, no, like this is our shit. Like if you have a problem with it, you can leave. And I've always really appreciated that about the music. And I think this album in a completely opposite spectrum does the same job and i think it shines brightest with this group of songs right here yeah i love i mean i think bluffin is probably my favorite track on the whole album i think bluffin is just because i that piano flip with the beat like it seems traditional in a way but if you've ever like been in like a group of people who want to freestyle over an instrumental and you want to throw them a curveball throw them bluffin it's very hard to rap over that song. And I think it's very interesting that he manages to do it with just piano and drums. He's not doing too much craziness with it, but it has that like fluttery quality that just makes it almost like a flourish of a song. And I feel like that's where he's 
flexing hardest as just like a traditional hip-hop producer is is in that song i would say certainly as we move into a post-covid society next time i'm back at the shelter on eight mile conducting rap battles i will, <laughs> I will be sure to throw on bluffin to try to stump uh the free world to see if b rabbit uh can, can put can a verse down it. over that <laughs> i think that would be a good experiment um boom music is a song we talked a little bit about before it went on the air of it is it is shouting out those tremendous black artists i mean it's you know gangstar and krs1 and bismarck and eric b i mean you know much more in the vein of rappers that i would i would typically listen to are all referenced in the song and just having that understanding it's almost like when a punk band uh like i i know like the band ceremony they have they have an album cover where it's a guy in a minor threat sweatshirt on the cover of it and for me that's like oh these guys get it and i think this is the equivalent of that on the unseen oh yeah and and the unseen is full of you know it's a it's a sample masterpiece i would say but it, it is a master class in just the use of sampling and not just again in uh, just sonically speaking, but thematically speaking, I think it uses its samples to say something with tracks like Boom Music and Jazz Cats. You know, if you listen to a lot of other Mad Libs music, I feel like in a way he's actually critical of a black American culture and the black community, but it's because he clearly loves it so dearly that he has an appreciation for it that runs deep. I mean, you know, with boom music and jazz cats, you know, the sheer referential quality, like you were saying is, is impressive. You know, this man is clearly well-read on not just hip hop, but jazz. And he, he loves these things so clearly that he's able to utilize them and flip them in a way that is accessible to anyone that it's like, it's kind of like a love letter, you know, like these are just real honest to God love letters to music that he clearly cares about. And it's, it's infectious. Like boom music is excellent. Uh, We do need to talk about jazz cats, which hmm. is uh, it's, it's track 17 on the album Chandler, you know me because you knew me freshman year when I feel like my anti-jazz sentiments were at an all-time high. And I don't even I don't even know how that started. Like I love like Pete Rock and CL Smooth. Like most of their most of their beats are have this jazzy foundation that I love. I love when jazz is incorporated into hip hop, but jazz is a standalone genre. It's not it's, it's not for me. Yeah, it's hard for yeah. It's, I, it's I not for me. My dislike of Jazz Cats, which I think is the lowest point on the album, has nothing to do with my overall thoughts on jazz. I (laughs) solemnly swear by that. I I promise that is not my issue with the song. I just felt like on an album where there's a lot of big creative swings, I think you're bound to have a few big creative misses. Uh, Like I mentioned, Come On Feet was one that I just, it it, it wasn't working for me, but now I have uh, your perspective to go back and listen to it there. Can you sell me on Jazz Cats at all? Because sonically and structurally, it's just a song that did not work for me. Well, I feel like Jazz Cats, I agree, sonically and structurally is not my my favorite uh, by far. It's certainly not one that I listen to on its own, I would say, but I feel like as its place in the album, again, I think it fits with boom music very well as a, not necessarily a centerpiece, but it's a foundation of the album, I would say, that jazz is clearly all over the place. It's It's riddled throughout the album, not just in 
you know, the music, but also in the in the sonic sound design portions, he uses like quotes from from jazz musicians as well that I think uh, I think are utilized very well. Uh, and with again, I think the song it serves a purpose more than anything else. And I think like a lot of it, it's intentional and it clearly. It, I wouldn't want the album to exist without it, but I do see where you're coming from as like, just like a song song. Yeah. It's not one that I listen to on its own. Usually. Uh, There's a string of songs in here. As you move towards kind of the back half of the album, put a curse on you, Astro black and green power. I love uh, those. Yeah. 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 Speak on those a little bit because th- there were songs that I kind of put this album into three different groups of like songs. I really like songs that I will continue to listen to. There's kind of your jazz cat songs. Where I'm like, ah, I don't think that's for me. And then there's a lot of songs in the middle where it was just something so different for me. It was, it was a new sound and something that I had never quite heard this approach to music. And I think this string of songs right here kind of illuminates that. Yeah. I think that put a curse on you is one of the most genuinely challenging hip hop songs I've ever listened to. Like it, it feels, and I think it's intentional, you know, I think there's something about it that speaks to that. Uh, I think that this is one of the more psychedelic songs just from the, like it uses a lot of vocal samples to a dizzying degree. You know, it uses it in a way to like trip you up. It is trying to feel like, like uh, like what he says, like I'll, I'll treat you like a witch doctor. You know, he's cu- he's coming in and trying to throw you off guard sonically and with an attitude. You know, it comes, it has a certain ethos and attitude that feels like powerful. And you know, to use again, I feel like the I'm I'm too white to be speaking on <laughs> these these issues of, of black uh, 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 America, but I feel like it's using traditional black culture you know it's like the idea of you know black people are someone that are gonna come and put a curse on you and it's gonna they're gonna they're gonna wreck you spiritually you know he's kind of playing on that to a comedic degree and then using it in a way that is a it is effective you know it's almost turning it in on itself and the the way that he uses that vocal sample towards the end of uh, put a curse on you and all your children will be junkies too. Your, ch- your, your daughter's going to give head to old dudes and limousines. You know, it's like very, it's like, it's not like, you know, an abstract curse. Like those are like real situations that they're trying to like curse onto someone. And I think that that's a really interesting and strange use of the power of the music that I think he has. Again, it feels like a very harnessed and focused part of the the album is that song right there. Um, go ahead. If you I, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on, on what I'm about to say, and if you don't, that that's totally okay, but as we are navigating, you know, a, a very just difficult month kind of for everybody, I have struggled with the idea of do I want to turn to artists? Do do I should I be listening to hip hop and and maybe these songs that I knew were about political unrest and these social evils that are going on in the world? Am I am I listening to that and learning something and manifesting a new opinion out of this, or am I simply using the artist for their art and and moving along? with my my day and I think it's just been a bit of an, an awakening for me of 
understanding the struggle and, and, and in a way that I never will. But I do think there's something that is so deeply American about hip-hop, and I just love what the genre represents, the spectrums it crosses, and the power that it has, because ultimately, politicians will fail us, family will not see eye-to-eye with you, but there is music there that you can attach to, and there is music there that means something emotionally, and I just have found hip-hop to be an incredibly powerful you know, almost even even for me, someone that is, you know, on the side of the oppressor as a white male, but but to have some sort of coping mechanism in hip hop over the past month, I have found to be a great tool. Yeah, I I, I feel like as non-black people, the only thing that we can do is just this is really hard. You know, I really don't know I what. I really don't know what to say at this point because I feel like I feel if you're speaking for them, you know, then you're doing wrong. If you're saying nothing, then you're doing wrong. You know, it's how do we, how do we amplify the voices that matter? Because right now they're the only voices that matter. And I can't help but feel guilty for speaking right now on their issues or even on their art right now. Uh, And even though, you know, I say I'm white, I'm Hispanic, but I was raised in the South. I'm half white. I might as well be white. Everyone thinks I'm white. I'm white passing, basically. Uh, But I have struggled very, very much with feeling, you know, not not enough like a person of color, feeling like I'm more on the side of the oppressor just by embodying it, you know, just by being what most people would consider a white person. But, I mean... The first album I ever paid money for was Wu-Tang Clan's Enter the 36 Chambers. That is the first album I ever bought with my own money when I was 13 years old. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, hip-hop has always been a very important genre to me. And I always saw it as a, you know, a genre that is owned by black people you know it's something that is theirs and that me listening to it it's something that they're giving me it's a privilege to be able to share in their culture right now i've always seen it that way i've never seen it as something that i am you know even a part of it's just a culture that as an observer i have a great deal of appreciation for and has like you said you know the speaking for political unrest and the sheer artistic nature of it. I've always loved stuff that's referential. You know, I feel like hip hop is just one of the most ingeniously referential forms of art because people who think that originality is, you know, the core of artistic expression, I think that they're not, you know, they don't understand that it's about pulling from what already exists, you know, whether it be your own experiences or other people's or other pieces of art, you know, it's important to acknowledge these things. And so I think that all in all, the most important thing to do is just acknowledge, acknowledge that where these things come from, what they mean, and let those that really know what the fuck they're talking about actually talk about it. Uh, Chandler, I think that is such a marvelous statement. I, I thank thank you for uh, saying that so much better than I ever could have. I, I think that is just marvelous. <laughs> as for the unseen, as we oh. kind of make our way towards that back half of the album. 
There's one more song that I know I specifically want to highlight. Uh, but before before I do that, is there anything that we haven't talked about on the album that really jumps out to you as sort of an essential listening track? Like you just have to hear this. Well, I'm wondering what your choice is, and then I'll give mine. So I would like to I would like to get, hear yours. Of course, guest wishes. Uh, for me, it is the last song on the album. It's Dis- Discipline ninety nine part one. Uh, oh. With with okay. the with the wild child verse closing out the album, you know, it samples uh, Big Daddy Kane and Gangstar in it. I just think this is like if if you're gonna have an album that's an hour long, you need to end on a definitively positive or not even positive, but just a definitively good statement. You need to make the end of this album, the last chapter of this book, it needs to be worth the journey because we have, we have completed the destination at this point and I, I need where I'm going to be worth it. And for me, this song was that I was so happy that by the time I got to the end of this, that it ended on such a high note. And I was so thrilled with the song. I think that a good place to actually draw that back to is right in the middle with Discipline 99 Part Zero. I think that that is an excellent, excellent, you know, those two pair really well together, you know, obviously in the in the titles, you know, being their their sister songs. Uh, I think that I absolutely agree that way, the way that Wild Child just closes this masterful album out from like, again, like the only feature i believe is he the only fe- i think he's the only feature and yes. yeah as being the only feature you know it's such a good i think again that nature of mad lib's desire to be be good from the inside out you know like be able to do most of the stuff on his own and then use that to elevate his collaborations i think that this this last track really does highlight that perfectly um Great choice. Great choice. And I do what I can. I'm a tastemaker, Chandler. I'd like <laughs> to be able to think I've got I've got some good inputs on this. Are there any other songs that jump out to you that you feel the need to mention? I absolutely do. And it is the title track. I think the unseen is you know, it being the title track is obviously very speaking, but that that before the beat switch up, uh that like intro part where it's just Lord Quaz, I think speaks to the, the solitude of the album. Like, I think, I think that, you know, talking about how he uses his, his ability to uplift his others, his collaborators, you know, I feel like he's even more recognized for his work with collaborations, you know, the Mad Villain album or his work with Freddie Gibbs with Pinata and Bandana, you know, those are probably bigger albums than the unseen, but the unseen exists as that singular artistic statement from Madlib, and I think that song really encapsulates it because, you know, he's using himself, Madlib, and the Lord Quaz character to great avail on that. But there is an element of solemnness and melancholy that I think comes from that song that is being that solo singular artistic person it's wanting to do stuff on your own basically i think that this album has a melancholy tinge to it and i think that that has that song really encapsulates the the best parts of that aspect i would say I could not agree more. Uh, I your your words are incredibly eloquent on an album that is incredibly poignant at this point in time. When we look critically at the album, like I said earlier in the show, it has been reviewed twice by Pitchfork, and both of those reviews are up on the site. The original review 
was a 7.3 out of 10. The reissue in 2005 was an 8.5 out of 10. The album, the reissue, also received a 7 out of 10 from Spin. Chandler, before I have you rate the album, I do want to read you this passage from the AV Club uh, and, and the writer Nathan Rabin, which I think sums up the album well, in which he says, The Unseen spins out all sorts of unexpected directions, with 24 tracks, most under three minutes, flowing together like individual chapters of a good book. The Unseen represents a dramatic leap forward for Madlib as a producer as he integrates left field found sound samples with dexterity and wit that brings to mind Prince Paul's consistently surprising production work. Chandler, with that in mind, if you had to give this album a rating out of 10, what would you give it, my friend? I'm going to give it a solid 10. I think that even the tracks that don't work for me... Honestly, I do think a modest ten. A, a modest ten. A modest ten. I think that it's honestly, as a again looking at it as a holistic piece, you know, it's greater than the sum of its parts. I think it is an album that absolutely stands as better than the sum of its parts. If the, even if there are tracks in it that may not stand to me as something that I'll listen to on its own, listening to it from beginning to end stands head and shoulders above something and i think that that his his choice of making it uh like a each song is like a short chapter of a good book i think it's more like a collection of short stories that combine together in a uh pulp fiction style smash of thematic and narrative plot lines that connect and weave together in a way that may seem Uh, sporadic at first, but again, looking at it as a whole piece, it works a lot better than one would expect. Chandler, your words have been so eloquent to this part of the podcast. I now ask you the big question, and I pray to God that you can deliver. Chandler, who needs to hear this album and why? Um... I mean, the simple, the the easy answer would be everyone, but I think that every, I think that every... Any person that may not find hip hop to be a particularly artistic genre or one that's maybe reserved only for parties or, you know, one to just get you hype. uh, I think that this album is for people that want to see what the genre can really do in a very broad sense because again it has those hype moments that are like okay this is just a classic great hip-hop song and then it has really self-reflective and melancholy interesting tracks that still carry you through as a um holistic experience i think that it's a very cinematic album so if you're looking for again just a holistic musical experience look no further than quasimodo's the unseen and every white person should have to listen to it as well. <laughs> no matter if you like hip hop or not, every white person should have to listen to it. Oh, I could not agree more. Chandler, where can the people find you? Do you want people to find you? Is there anything you want to plug now? You have the floor. Um, no, no, I'm not. Uh, I mean, you can find me if you really want to. I'm sure you can. Uh, I'm not that hard. I have a very big digital footprint, I would say. But I don't want to take this time to plug myself. I don't think that that's the right thing to do. I think you should uh, look into Quasimodo's artwork. Uh, Jay, is it Jeff Jank, I think, is the artist that actually drew Quasimodo. Um, look into his artwork. But 
uh, Otis Jackson Jr., a.k.a. Madlib, a.k.a. Quasimodo. Um, everything that he's touched is gold, I think. Um, just the black country artist I was looking into, <laughs> I mentioned earlier, look into them. Uh, you know, there's just so much good stuff created by black people all around the world, not just in America, you know. Look to the old African, you know, jazz, like, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Fila Pharma? I can't remember his name. He's an amazing, amazing jazz musician. Halu, um, oh, God, I'm just butchering so and, many and people. I, and I can't, I can't yeah. save you here because you're talking jazz musicians, and I just, I know I do not know who you're talking <laughs> about. I just know there's no life preserver in sight for you at this exact uh, moment. You know what? I'll just leave it at, I'll, I'll leave it at, the, the man that we've talked about today and everyone involved around him, everything he's touched has turned to gold. Um, and I'd also like to, uh, Case asked me before we were on air if I had any, um, you know, bail funds that I wanted to plug or any uh, GoFundMes that I wanted to plug. And I, truth be told, do not have uh, any at the time being there. You can look onto any social media and any monicum of research will come up with something that you yourself as a listener can personally uh, vouch for. But for my personal plug, I would like to dedicate everything that I've said to my dear friend, Brianna Smith, uh, also known as Yams Smith. She was unfortunately shot and killed on her 21st birthday in my hometown outside of her apartment. Uh, no investigation has yielded any information so far. Uh, don't know if it was a hate crime or gang related or it doesn't matter but someone that I knew very well and that I cared about uh, was taken very recently. And I'm sure that, you know, it's going to be a shame if she ever fades into just being another black person that was killed during this shit show of a time. So I would like to at least, at least have her name recorded on track for the internet, you know, at least once. And hopefully that this lasts forever because I think that she should, um, she deserves so much more than what she got uh, rest in peace, Brianna Smith. Uh, you were loved very dearly. Well, Chandler, I thank you for bringing that story to the podcast, even if it has such an unfortunate end to it. Um, as for me, uh, this week, I would like to specifically shout out the Inner City Muslim Action Network, who is doing great work uh, both in Chicago and in Atlanta. They are deeply rooted in those communities. I think they do a great job. I know for me personally, there has been no more inviting community than that of the central Indiana Muslim community. They have always been incredibly kind and an incredibly positive force in the city of Indianapolis. And the group that Inner City Muslim Action Network does in Chicago and Atlanta is worthwhile. God forbid you need to get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at underscore uh, case low C A S E L W E. And if you just want updates on the podcast, that is on Instagram at Art School Albums. Chandler, I thank you for being on the show. This has been Quasimodo's The Unseen.